0: I'm very pleased to be joined today by Dr. Bill von Hippel. He is an evolutionary social psychologist and a professor at the University of Queensland, Australia. Bill is also the author of The Social Leap, a book which explores the evolution of human social intelligence, which we'll be talking about today. Bill, welcome to the Nature and Nurture podcast. Thanks, Adam. It's nice to be here. Pleasure's all mine. Uh, So The Social Leap It would be great to to provide a high-level overview, and then we could start talking about some of the details and how you came to write this book and all of
1: that. Sure. So the idea behind The Social Leap is what was the big transition that that we went through um, in our evolution from basically a chimp-like creature to the human creatures that we are today. Mm -hmm. And the reason I call that a social leap is that It was a shift from the forest to the ground, so you can envision that something like a leap. But what made that leap successful was the sociality that we gained along the way, our increased cooperativeness, our increased tendency to care about each other, our increased capacity to work together. And so it was this social solution to this physical threat, the threat of predation on the savanna that brought us to where we are today. And that's why I refer to that sort of jump from the trees to the savanna as a social leap.
0: Was it, in evolutionary terms, genuinely a leap, or was it more like a crawl, and then we're just talking millions of years here, so it unfolds over a long span of time?
1: Yeah, very much a crawl, and in fact, the irony is that we didn't leave the trees, rather the trees left us, and Uh so it was a 30-million-year period of time whereby the upwelling on the East African plate, uh, Somalia, Kenya, Tanzania, Ethiopia, that slow increasing in in um, altitude led to the slow drying out of the rainforest until there essentially wasn't much left on the east side of the Rift Valley.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: that process finished around 6 million years ago, which is when our ancestors were really finally and fully forced out of the trees. And then as you say, it was millions of years before we increased mm-hmm. our sociality, before we went through these kinds of processes. Now in, in evolutionary time, you could still think of that as a leap, but very much uh-huh. a crawl.
0: Yeah, so you might've heard some skeptics of evolution and I'm the furthest thing from that ask, you know, if humans evolved from apes, why are chimps, why do chimps still exist on their own? And one thing I'm wondering is if there was this sort of evolutionary selection pressure uh, pressure for us to become more social and more intelligent, how did the ex- existing chimps that didn't change much in the past six million years, how were their behaviors conserved?
1: yes that's a great question so the way to think about this problem is that so you've got two sets of chimpanzee like creatures they weren't exactly like today's chimps of course of course they've evolved for six million years as well but they're Mm -hmm. to the best of our knowledge very similar and so you've got some chimp like folks on the west side of the rift valley and some chimp like folks on the east side Mm -hmm. now the ones on the west side have a good life chimpanzees are um, at the top of the food chain they when they're with their group and they're in the canopy, nothing can attack them. Not even leopards, which which do predate on chimps, will attack Mm -hmm. them when they're with their group in the trees because they're simply too fast and too dangerous. Mm -hmm. And so there is very little pressure on this animal to change its habits or to change its morphology because it's very successful. Um, In contrast, now you put chimpanzees in the rainforest on the east side of the Rift Valley and you let the rainforest slowly disappear. Well, now the animals are forced onto the ground. Mm -hmm. We know a little bit about what chimpanzees do when they're on the ground, because there is a group in Senegal that um, lives at the edge of the rainforest and spends a fair bit of time in open woodlands and out on the savanna. And -hmm. so we can look at their behaviors and how they differ. But the, the problem is that if you're forced permanently on the savanna, now you've got an animal that's super well adapted to life in the trees and very poorly adapted to life on the ground. Mm-hmm. And so my bet is that if imagine you're sort of God of your own planet, and you can just replay this over and over to see how it works out. Uh-huh. I would bet you that 95 times out of 100, you end up with either a bunch of extinct um, animals that didn't make it. They, they You wiped out all the ones on the east side, or you end up with animals that are skulking around the edges of the savannah. At the very bottom of the food chain and they're just timid little beasts that are trying to Mm -hmm. stay out of harm's way avoid the big predators that are now a threat to them and try to find new sources of food Mm -hmm. now we got lucky that there was a very particular pathway that they followed that happened to work out really well for us but it was an enormous amount of luck and it probably came with a lot of carnage i I suspect most of our would-be ancestors simply didn't make it so -hmm. what you have is a situation where there's a great deal of evolutionary pressure selective pressure on animals on one side and not on animals on the other. And so they have no reason to change their lifestyles. There's no reason for them to suffer the kinds of things that our ancestors suffered in order to happily for us get to where we are today.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: So the chimps on the West side, where there were more, uh, more forests remained largely unchanged. And then on the East, we gradually had to shift towards walking upright on, on the ground. That's
1: right. Because the ones on the left, on the West side, were very successful. They've mm-hmm. they've got no reason to try, it. there's no evolutionary pressure on them to change because their life strategy is a very good one. They're at the top of the food chain. They're they're it's difficult to predate them. And so they're going to be as successful as pathogens in the random predation event and as um, their the size of their environment allows.
0: Mm-hmm. So these chimps in Senegal that you mentioned that are sort of halfway between, are there morphological differences as well where they're yeah,
1: none. Yeah, they're exactly like regular chimps, well, other chimps, um, but they they engage in different behaviors. So it's an interesting change. Um, chimpanzees in the forest tend not to share very well. Uh, these they don't, these chimps in Senegal don't share as well as we do, but they share better. Chimps in the forest tend to be in relatively small groups. The ones in Senegal are in larger groups. Mm-hmm. Chimps in the forest have never been known to use um, uh, wooden spears like humans do. Uh, chimps in Senegal have been, they, they'll sharp, they'll bite a stick and then use it to stab they prey in like the, in the hollow of a tree. So and they sleep in caves. They do a bunch of things that look like a transition toward us.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So playing God, if humans were wiped out, do you think these chimps in Senegal would be more likely to evolve to to basically become like humans again, given millions of years to do so?
1: I doubt it. And the reason I doubt it is that they always can and do retreat back into the forest. Mm -hmm. And so they found an interesting and and to me somewhat surprising because it's risky strategy of going out into the grasslands. Um, And it, it could be that I'm wrong and that they would just do it more and more. And then, yeah, maybe they would be the next round of humans if we all wiped ourselves out. World War Three happens to be around the corner or something like that. Uh, but I don't think so. I think that they're, we're not gonna see the morphological changes that are necessary that led to us because there simply is an evolutionary pressure on them to do so. And because mm-hmm. they spent so much time back up in the trees developing the kind of bipedalism that we have wouldn't be that useful for them.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So compared to humans, chimps aren't that intelligent and aren't as cooperative or as social but compared to most other animals, they're highly intelligent
1: and highly social, is that right? That is right. And so to give it an example, human beings are ha, are the only animal on the planet to our knowledge that have a fully developed theory of mind, which means mm-hmm. that I know that the contents of your mind differ from the contents of my mind. And further, I know that I can um, in, influence the contents of your minds by telling you something true or untrue, and thereby planting the seeds of an idea in your head. Mm-hmm. Um, chimpanzees have a partial theory of mind they, they get almost there. But because they're also less cooperative than us and because their theory of mind is not quite as fully developed as their own, they've never once been shown to use it in the service of cooperation. They only have been shown to use it in service of competition. So Mm -hmm. here's an example. If I'm the alpha chimp in my group and I see you and another chimp who are a little bit of a threat to me because you're rising up in the ranks. If I see you two together a lot, when I see you together, I'll charge you because I Mm -hmm. don't want you two to make an alliance to supplant me right? Uh-huh. And so that's pretty clever. It's an awareness that the two of you might be in cahoots and might be trying to overthrow me. And uh-huh. so that's some awareness that the contents of your mind might differ from my own. But consider this experiment by Michael Tomasello, who's a, a wonderful um, evolutionary psychologist. He um, he gives chimpanzees, these are now chimps who live in the lab, uh, or in zoos, and he gives them um, a platform with food on it and a rope. Now there's mm-hmm. two ropes and and two platforms. And, and you have to pull on both ropes because if only one rope is pulled, nothing happens. And okay. so it's a device that requires cooperation. Well, if you and I are playing the game together and I pull and you pull and, the, and your food goes toward you and my food goes toward me and we're on opposite sides of the of the device, that works out great and we'll both eat our food and we'll cooperate forever. That mm-hmm. can go on as long as somebody puts food on our trays. But the moment that they change the apparatus so both trays come toward me and I'm the alpha chimp and you're not, I'll eat everything. I won't share anything with you. And so within Mm -hmm. just a few rounds, you're like, well, I'm not cooperating with you anymore. And you stop doing your part. And then it's useless to me because if I pull on only one rope, nothing happens. Mm -hmm. But I can never figure that out. The penny never drops that I need to share with you in order for you to continue to cooperate with me.
0: I see. That reminds me of that Franz Waal experiment where you have the cucumbers and the grapes and one monkey gets angry if the other one gets a better snack than he does.
1: Yeah, it's a classic example of, uh, we, we think of it in terms of unfairness. And I don't think a monkey has such a rich interpretation that they can do fair and unfair, but they can do more and less. And why would they do something where another animal is, is for doing the same activity is getting more?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So both in, in terms of concepts like fairness and our moral values, and then also social intelligence more broadly, would it be right to conceptualize it as building on these sort of baseline, more effective responses? So like, maybe you don't have a fully fleshed out system of fairness, but you notice that you get angry if someone uh, crosses you in some way, or if you you get happy, if you cooperate and you get food or something like that. And then building on top of that, you start to have a higher order awareness of it.
1: Absolutely. And so you can always think of these, these processes as stepwise functions each Evolution relies on our prior history. And so it Mm -hmm. can build on what's already there very easily, but it's very difficult to invent something out of whole cloth. And Mm -hmm. so we see a lot of what look like weird compromises and, and engineering workarounds, but that's only because the system can't go back to the beginning and and start over with a more sensible starting spot, given where it now knows that it wants to go. And so the psychology of monkeys, you can see very much in apes, but now they're more clever. And so they've got added layers of of abilities and then the psychology of apes you see in us, but now we're much more clever and much more cooperative. And we see lots of additions beyond them.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: So starting from this initial divergence, you said around 6 million years ago, mm-hmm. um, what what was one of the first examples of sort of a higher level of social intelligence that we started using and started getting uh, some sort of benefit from?
1: So we don't know exactly when these things happened um, because behaviors don't fossilize nearly as well as as bodies and tools and things like that, but we can, mm-hmm. we can piece together the puzzle. So accepting that there's a lot of inference and in what I'm about to tell you, and a lot of speculation,
2: mm-hmm.
1: what, what I think happened is the following. We know that by um, 3.6 million years ago, so a little less than 3 million years after they were forced out of the trees, we know that our ancestors, Australopithecines were bipedal. They walked fully upright. And we mm-hmm. know that both from the skeletons that have, that we found the, the fossils uh, in the shape, where, how their head sits on their neck, and how their knees and hips work,
2: mm-hmm. and we
1: also know that um, from footprints that we were very lucky to find in ash that then solidified from three point six million years ago. So, the prior to that, uh, chimpanzees they they can't fully straighten their knees, they can't fully straighten their hips because they're not bipedal. They walk on all fours and they spend a lot of time in the trees. Mm-hmm. But what what these data tell us with Australopithecines is within two and a half three million years they had developed a fully upright stance and we can talk about the reasons why they might have done that sure that's a separate question but for the moment they had done that and and that coincidentally allowed them just as a byproduct of bipedalism it wasn't an evolved feature but a byproduct that allowed them to create what we now regard as the most important military invention in all of history and what that invention is is the capacity to kill at a distance
2: mm-hmm. and
1: so when, when you can only kill in person, you know, striking one to another, there's no way for a large force of small individuals to defeat a, a small force of large individuals. I mean, imagine uh-huh. that you and I are out in the savannah and there's a lion there. Well, it's going to attack us. And so we want to kill uh-huh. it, but we're going to be arguing like crazy about <laughs> yeah. who goes first, because we know whoever's first, second, third, fourth, and probably fifth is going to end up dead and in the mouth of that lion. And maybe when it's busy mm-hmm. chewing on you and its mouth is full, I'd have a chance to whack it on the head. Mm-hmm. So... It's just, it's never going to happen. When the lion comes running at us, we're going to scatter. Even if we know that one of us is going to die because we're not nearly as fast as that lion is. We're still going to do it because I'm just hoping that I'm faster than you are, or that it goes after you instead of me. Mm -hmm. But once I, we can kill at a distance. Now we can defend ourselves before the lion ever gets to us. And what happened with bipedalism is that our, we developed the capacity to rotate because our hips got longer and our shoulders became more laterally flexible So did Mm -hmm. her arms. And so all that allows highly effective throwing. When we think about throwing, we often think about just tossing a ball. But but actual throwing throwing by hunter-gatherers and by skilled throwers is a full-body movement that creates enormous elastic energy across your tendons, ligaments, and muscles. So Mm -hmm. at the very end of the throw, it's like the snapping of a rubber band. And that's why humans can throw way better than chimpanzees can, even though chimps are pound for pound stronger than we are. Mm-hmm. And we now, we can see in Australopithecines their skeletal structure would have allowed not quite as good as we can, but highly effective throwing. And that seems to be the time at which we shifted from a fundamentally competitive animal where other members of my group all occasionally work together with them, but by and large, I'm competing with them to get the things I want to a fundamentally cooperative animal like us. Because now for the first time in our history, if we just work together, then we're all safer. So uh-huh. I don't want to run away and hope it eats you I want you to stick around. Me to stick around, and both of us to throw stones because I can't drive it away by myself. But I can if there's enough of us that we can all work together.
0: Right? Did these throwing adaptations happen purely as a byproduct, or did we do we also see over time like our arms start to differ in a certain way that's more adaptive for throwing at long distances?
1: Yeah. So they would have initially been purely a byproduct: the rotational ability mm-hmm. of your waist, the lateral. The, our muscles are laterally oriented. The chimpanzees are vertically oriented because they're always going mm-hmm. up and down trees, and we're not. We're dealing with things side to side in our world rather than up and down, and and that that shift from up and down to side to side facilitated throwing to a huge degree. Mm-hmm. But we know that australopithecines, australopithecines were entirely bipedal, and yet they still don't have quite the flexibility in their hand that we have. They don't have quite mm-hmm. the flexibility and the ability and in 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 the way of their shoulders are attached, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so my guess is that if the throwing hypothesis is correct, that in actual fact, that then furthered the development of certain features of us that were so important to protect ourselves.
0: Uh-huh. Did human vision also get better as we started becoming long distance
1: hunters? That's a great question. Um, I, I don't know. It's, it's certainly very feasible, but the one thing about us as hunters is that we are, um, we're, we're what is often referred to as persistence hunters. And mm-hmm. so because we're bipedal and because we can sweat, we, we no longer have hair all over our body and therefore an an inability to sweat. When we, um, what we what we see hunter-gatherers do is they'll chase down an animal that's way faster than they are. So let's say a gazelle.
2: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: if I go running after a gazelle, well, phew, it's gone, I can't even see it. But if I just keep running and if I'm a good tracker, I'll catch up to it and I'll have to run again. And I can run for hours and hours at a medium pace, whereas it can only run for a little while at a top pace. The end result is eventually I come upon that animal and it's so exhausted, it can't cool its body, Uh that it it literally can't run away. And so a lot of people believe that part of the reason we're bipedal and and a good part of the reason why we have no hair on our body anymore was to engage in this extensive persistence hunting, which in the end, vision wouldn't have been that important. It would have helped. But mm-hmm. you, you need to be a good tracker and see where the animal's gone when you're looking at its footprints, because it's over the horizon or around the corner. And then you just keep running after it until you finally catch up to it. Mm-hmm. So that ties into why we
0: initially became upright in the first place. And I actually did a previous episode with a paleoanthropologist, Jeremy DeSilver. Uh-huh. So listeners could check that out if they're interested in more depth. But it basically boils down to once we came down from the trees, it was more energy efficient, right?
1: Well, yes and no. Um, whenever you get a big change, uh, our brain getting larger, going from walking on all fours to walking upright, there's mm-hmm. rarely a single cause. Right. And there's no question that that he's right that energy efficiency would have played a hugely important role, but it's not necessarily what got us to stand up in the first place.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: so my personal hypothesis, which I've, there's no evidence to support it, it's just what I believe happened, is that when um, when we first started walking upright, we know that we're somewhere between chimpanzee and Australopithecines. And mm-hmm. what, what that means is that we also know that we're an animal that lives entirely in the present. That animal cannot cast its mind forward and simulate the future. And mm-hmm. so there's, there's um, for example, the uh, the earliest stone tools, which are even more recent than this event, have never been carried any great distance from where they were quarried and made. And that mm-hmm. suggests that the animal didn't realize oh, I, I don't need them now, it doesn't realize, well, I'm going to need them again tomorrow. It just tossed them away because they're of no use to it anymore in its current mm-hmm. mindset. And we know the same holds for chimpanzees and monkeys and, and lots and lots of other animals. So yeah. if you're trapped in the present and you can't say, gee, it'd be nice if I could carry things with me because mm-hmm. I might need them tomorrow. They, they can't think that. If you're trapped in the present then why would you ever want to stand upright in the first place on the savannah? And I think the answer mm. to that question is that as soon as you get away from the trees, you're afraid because you're an animal that evolved to live in trees and that's how you escape predators. And that uh-huh. fear, as you step out into the savannah would have caused you to want a weapon in your hands right then and there. And so remember there are already chimps before they do this. So they've got proper hands. Mm-hmm. And so my guess is they would have grabbed a stick or a stone as they headed out into the savannah, not because they're trying to prepare for potentially being attacked by a predator, but because they were afraid right now and Uh being afraid right now made them want to have a weapon. And then that would have put them into a more upright stance. It would have given value to them to be able to walk efficiently, not on three limbs, but on two limbs so that they could hold the stick and look around for predators. Then, absolutely, Jeremy mm-hmm. and all the other scientists are correct. It becomes more energy efficient. It gives you all sorts of positive consequences. But I think that's the particular motivation that stood us up mm-hmm. in the first place. So do
0: chimps already go to grab things when they feel threatened?
1: Chimps will often. Not always. They're funny that way. They'll, um, they, they will use uh, tools like that, but they often just fight each other. Like When they're threatened by each other, they often just fight with their own hands and teeth. Mm-hmm. Um, occasionally, they'll we see them pick up a stick, and like I told you, the Senegalese um, chimps will use a stick as a as a tool for hunting. Um, mm-hmm. These things are relatively rare. by the By the time we get to from chimpanzees to Australopithecines, we've gone from about a 380 gram brain to about a 450 gram brain, uh-huh. and that's not much. That's three million years and only 70 grams of brain, but it's enough that it might have made them a little bit more understanding of the value of having a weapon with them than chimps seem to be today.
0: Right, it was very surprising for me to see that, uh, you know, I I originally thought that we must have become bipedal to use tools, but it seems like the bipedalism came first and then the tool use came, or as you're uh, proposing, maybe they came around the same time, but then the
1: tool use got more advanced later down the line. Yeah, so so remember chimps do use tools, but they don't fashion them very much. They mostly just Mm -hmm. use a stick, take a rock, bash a nut with it, that kind of thing. So that would have already been in our repertoire, which would have enabled them. It's not a huge leap to then pick up a rock or a stick to try to defend yourself. Mm-hmm. Although chimps don't seem to do that very much, but nonetheless, it, it wouldn't have been a huge leap to do that. The, um, but if we were already bipedal, because our goal was to use objects that were there to protect ourselves, once we were bipedal, well, we're in much better position to start napping stone tools and doing the kinds of changing of tools that we see much more commonly in the, in the fossil record after we became bipedal. So remember, we're bipedal 3.6 mm-hmm. million years ago. The earliest hint we have of a stone tool that was changed are the Lamequi tools from 3.3 million years ago. Lots of people don't believe, well, there's an argument about whether, what they really represent and exactly how old they are, but they're just barely sharpened stone tools. Mm-hmm. And so the changing stones is a bit of an effort and seems to have come well and truly after we became bipedal. Uh
2: huh.
0: So from 6 million years ago to 3.6 million years ago, it sounds like the, the main difference was the bipedalism and the slightly larger yes. brains and yes. maybe the beginnings of tool use. So that, that's sort of all individual, right? So the social leap would start right after these changes.
1: Yes, that's, that's exactly right. So once we start shaping stone tools, um, once we're bipedal, now we're in a position, potentially, hopefully, I mean, I don't know when it happened, I, and there's a lot of speculation, but my assumption is that somewhere along the line, maybe the 10,000th time, or maybe the millionth time, that a bunch of mm-hmm. Australopithecines were crossing the open savannah and were attacked by leopards, hyenas, lions, maybe even saber-toothed tigers, because so saber-toothed cats, because they roamed East Africa at the time. It occurred to all of them, let's throw stones together, or it just, it so happened that, it, that they did it. Uh-huh. They all got scared and threw a rock. And then they go, wow, that worked. And uh-huh. then the ones who were doing that, the ones who had that capacity and awareness, uh, would have been way better placed to survive these kinds of attacks. And so that proclivity would have, would have been passed on.
0: Yeah. Cause the main question I had there was how would they communicate? How would they get ready for the attack? I have heard that yeah. chimps have various different calls for different types of predators. So maybe you have like a few different distinct sounds and, um, I I think that sounds like an early version of language. Some people seem to think that it's it's too primitive to be called language but I'm wondering whether from those danger calls if you could build up maybe like an
1: attack call or something like that. Yeah so we do have um, we have good evidence that monkeys and and apes have numerous kinds of calls that mean different things. Mm -hmm. For example monkeys will have a call for a threat from the sky like a hawk and a threat Mm -hmm. from the ground like a snake and they, re- they understand each other's calls, and they, they respond accordingly. Now, that's clearly communication, but it's definitely not language. There's no flexibility there. You've got a few mm-hmm. sounds, and they mean a certain thing. The advantage of this particular pathway, though, is that it's very difficult to, in- to initiate cooperation. You, mm-hmm. you have to have some kind of orienting event that gets everyone to agree, oh, let's cooperate. Now, it does happen, and chimpanzees themselves will do that. They'll We don't quite understand how they do it, but they'll gather up the males in the group and they'll go on a a patrol of their territory and attack Hmm. any other chimps that they find from other groups who are on the edges of their territory. So they can orient without something just of their own accord. We know they can do that. But it yeah. would have been a lot easier to orient if there was a threat from the outside, if somebody noticed it first and called it, and then we all pay all of our attention would be drawn to the threat because of course, we, none of us want to die.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: once our attention is drawn to the threat, if we have the capacity to throw, that would have been a much more natural response.
0: Uh huh. So that patrolling is a good example of a middle ground of how intentional is this or not? Because, you know, we could think if you have a human neighborhood watch. Everyone has probably had a discussion about who gets what shifts and what the goals are. And then if you have something like beavers building dams together, usually we don't seem to think they're thinking about it. We seem to say that it's programmed in their genes and they just enact out the behavior. So there's this sort of, maybe it's like a gradient of things that are sort of just instinctual and then gradually they become more self-aware. Do we see that evolve over time, like from more instinctual behaviors to more self-awareness?
1: Absolutely. I I suspect that's exactly how it happened. And so this kind of orienting and this kind of increased cooperation was building on itself very, very slowly over time. Mm -hmm. Now, it's, it's my personal bet that language came much later because at this point in time, you still need to communicate you need to, ideally, you don't want to notice the lion only when it's eating your neighbor. You want to notice the lion when it's at a distance and you want to draw everyone's attention to it.
2: Mm-hmm. Lots of
1: animals can do that. And so communication would have gotten more and more sophisticated. But from my perspective, you don't really need language until you start talking about things that aren't there. And mm-hmm. so if I wanna point out a lion to you, all I got to, I don't need to say a word, I can go, ah, and point, and you go, uh-oh, lion uh-huh. over there, right? <laughs> and you don't yeah. necessarily know it's a lion versus a hyena versus a leopard versus a saber tooth, but you don't really care either. All of those things wanna eat you, they wanna eat me, and we need to work together mm-hmm. to stop it. But once we get, and this is fast forwarding, and so we can come back to this issue, but mm-hmm. once we get to Homo erectus, now we're at about 2 million years ago, but maybe they don't have this capacity till more like 1.7 million years ago, We start to see an ability to think and think about the future in ways that none of these other animals can. And then Mm -hmm. once you can simulate the future, it becomes a heck of a lot more difficult to to communicate about it. You know, if I want Uh to point a line to you, I make a noise and I point. But if I want to tell you what I want to do tomorrow, I can make noises and point all day. And you're like, what do you want about Bill? And so it wouldn't have been until my mind expands a little bit and I can start imagining places where I'm not like, let's go hunting over there where I start imagining times where I'm not, gee, let's be, let's think about hunting tomorrow or doing something tomorrow, Mm -hmm. uh, leaving whatever it is we might do that now there's enormous pressure on me for symbolic communication to somehow Uh communicate something that you can neither see nor hear. And so there's lots of argument about this. None of us know the answer, but my personal, some people think it's about tool making. My -hmm. personal belief is that none of the pressure on us to actually develop language would have happened until Homo erectus. Uh
0: Uh-huh. What would the different pressure be
1: so so let's go back to osteopithecines
2: mm-hmm. they now
1: have this um an orienting event something's attacking them remember i'm only speculating that's going to happen i don't know yeah. and so um they would have had pressure on them that would have caused them to try to defend themselves and then potentially once they've done that enough times they go oh you know, this doesn't. This isn't useful just for protection. It's also useful for hunting. If we mm-hmm. all go throw stones together, we can take down some pretty big animals. And so that's not a huge mental leap. And so once right. they cooperated enough in their defense, one can imagine some kind of sim- signal or something where they all head out in the morning and they they bring their stone. Well, no, they couldn't. They couldn't bring their stone yet. I take that back. They couldn't think about the future, but they all head mm-hmm. out together. And when the opportunity arose, they could grab whatever's available and potentially use that to hunt. Uh-huh. Now, that's three and a half million years ago. We don't see, it, it's another two million years before we see any sign of the animal's ability, of, of our ancestors' ability to plan for the future. And what mm-hmm. we do see happening though around Australopithecines, remember we've got three million years of evolution to get to them and yeah. we've only gained 70 grams of brain. But mm-hmm. they're the inflection point. From Australopithecines onward, we're dramatically increasing our brain power with every passing millennia and so the probably something happened then and there that made increasing brain more useful for them than it ever had been in the past and Mm -hmm. so this comes back to your earlier question well why are chimpanzees still chimps and why didn't they evolve into us to evolve more brain you have to be able to pay the rent on that additional metabolic cost and Uh there's nothing that the brains would particularly do to help chimps if they don't cooperate enough in order to help them pay the rent on that additional brain. And so as once we started socially working together, as I argue happened with australopithecines, that now the value of greater brains became much clearer. And for every gram of brain we gained, we gained the capacity to bring in more calories to pay for it.
0: huh. So being able to, to look at and infer what other people are, or other, other. I don't know if you'd call them people yet. <laughs> uh, our what, ancestors. What, yeah, our ancestors, what they're, what they're thinking or what they're aiming at. Um, this seems like a good place to bring up what you mentioned about the whites of our eyes evolving. Did this coincide around that time?
1: Yeah, so that's a great question. We, we can't do the genetics on Australopithecines. It's amazing that we can do it on things as old as Neanderthals mm-hmm. and other archaic humans, but we can't look back and and do that with our Australopithecines. Australopithecines. So we don't even know with certainty that they're our grandparents, they could be our uncles and aunts. Mm-hmm. You know, it could be somebody else is in our direct line. We just don't know. Um, and as a consequence, we don't know what the soft tissue would have looked like, like their eyeballs. Mm-hmm. But I suspect that it's around this time that we start to shift to a greater cooperativeness, and so it's around this time that we want to start to advertise the direction of our attention. And chimpanzees yeah. and gorillas and orangutans disguise, disguise that information with the brown sclera of their eyes, and we advertise it with the white sclera of ours. And Mm -hmm. if I had to guess, I'd say it's around that period of time where that would have developed, because that would just facilitate cooperation. If I see the direction of your attention, if you advertise it, I'm more prepared to help you solve the problem that you suddenly identify.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: So this also might be speculation, but around this time, do we know how humans are living? Like, are they within small tribes or larger bands? Do we know
1: what the size might be like? No, we don't. I mean, it's a great question and it'd be wonderful if we had good evidence, but we, every once in a while we find a fair few together, but we never know, well, did they end up together um, randomly or is that how many were traveling at a time and is that a meaningful number? Mm-hmm. The um, We do know that, that human beings, hunter gather human beings tend to be together in groups between typically 15 to 20 at the small end and up to 60 at the large end. Yeah. And when nomadic wanderers, and we know what size chimpanzee groups tend to be in. And so they're not mm-hmm. that discrepant from one another. Um, so probably Australopithecines were much the same, but, but we don't know. Yeah,
0: because yeah, you hear a lot about tribalism, especially in social psychology. And I'm wondering if it's always been that way, or if at one point it was like all humans stick together or the proto-humans. And then only later, once we became more advanced and developed culture, did we start like separating off into different bands?
1: Yeah, we, we don't know. My personal speculation is that once we get to Homo erectus, we get tribalism.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: the reason I believe that is that Homo erectus, by virtue of their capacity to envision the future, also had the capacity um, for division of labor. And we've got good evidence, at least by 1.2 million years ago, for that division of labor in these stone tool production sites in India that in, um, that we now have where The first part of the stone tool is made here and the second part's made here and the third part's made there. And that Mm -hmm. spatial separation in the site is something you never do if you're making it all by yourself. Why would you start it here and then walk over there and then work some more and then walk over there? Well, you just wouldn't. But you would if if I do the first part and you do the second part and somebody else does the third part Mm -hmm. because each one of those parts requires different skills. So once you've got a capacity to envision the future, which we can see Homo erectus had because they did carry their tools with them for long distances. Mm -hmm. Once you've got the capacity for division of labor, well, now you're right on your way back to the top of the food chain, because now groups have emergent properties that single individuals just don't have. And so soon enough, the greatest threat to our ancestors was no longer the big predators on the savannah that had been such a difficult, had caused us so many problems after we left the trees, but rather the only thing that could really threaten a group of our ancestors was another group of ancestors. Uh And so I think it's around this time, we don't know, but I think it's around this time that it it logically follows that homo erectus would have been very leery of other groups of homo erectus that they didn't know or didn't have their, their, if they were already speaking, they didn't have their accent or didn't, um, if they were wearing clothing, didn't wear the kinds of clothing that we don't know any of this stuff, but Mm -hmm. Because we just nothing survives that long, these sort of intangibles, or, or these things that can rot. But one way or another, they would have known who was in their group and who wasn't. And somebody from another group may be an opportunity, maybe a chance to mm-hmm. trade and, and even avoid inbreeding by males or females shifting groups, but it also would have been a potential threat.
0: Uh uh-huh. So is that to say that by the time of homo erectus, we were already top of the food chain relative to other animals?
1: Well, lots of people disagree about this. I think that we were either there or very soon about to be there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, lots of people think that Homo erectus were just scavengers. I don't think so. There's too much evidence, well, not too much. There's, a, there's some evidence of, the, of Homo erectus tools, for example, on the upper thighs of, of large animals. We can see cuts in the bones from their tools. Well, if you look at mm-hmm. animal kills, like uh, a lion kill, there's nothing left on the thigh. That's they, they eat the stomach and stuff first because that's super important for them to gain some semi-digested food from ungulates, which they, mm-hmm. they get like folic acid and stuff. But then they go immediately for the meaty thighs and areas like that. If you look at yeah. a an animal kill on the savannah and you want food off it, you're eating stuff around the hoof. I mean, there's very little proper food left. Uh And so there'd be no reason for our ancestors to have stone tool cut marks on the upper thighs, which tells me that they were actually hunting these animals themselves. They were not just scavengers, which tells me that they were either already back at the top or well on their way.
0: Yeah, that's a cool line of thinking. I I wouldn't have thought of it, but it makes sense.
1: I wouldn't have either. There's tons of really (laughs) great um, paleoanthropologists and Mm -hmm. such out there who are doing all the groundwork to make all this happen. So what was the
0: brain size difference between Australopithecus and Homo erectus?
1: So so you've got um, a chimp, remember, 380 grams and Australopithecines at about 450. Homo erectus is 960. So it's a dramatic Mm -hmm. change in the next million and a half to 2 million years. Uh Keeping in mind that Homo erectus is also a lot bigger than Australopithecines and and larger animals just tend to have larger brains anyway because their bodies are bigger. So it's their brains more, more than doubled in size but it doesn't really reflect more than doubling in in probably usable additional brain power because of the increase in body size.
0: Okay. So you get more or less that first doubling probably from hunting. And then around that time around homo erectus is when we start to use fire and cooking food. Right. And then that's where you get the second big brain jump. Is that
1: right? Right. Exactly. So, so Richard Rangham argued some time ago that homo erectus must've been the ones who invented the, who learn the capacity to control fire. And his argument is based in part on their large brain size and in part on the fact that the ribs don't aim outward anymore, but rather are very flat. And flat ribs tell you that you have a relatively small gut. So if you look at the gut to brain ratio of a chimpanzee, for example, you've got a whole lot of gut. It's got this big stomach sticking out and not much brain. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is that it's very hard to extract calories from food if you don't cook it first. It, the food, it takes forever to chew chimpanzees who have very, very strong jaws, spend eight hours a day chewing their food. They just Mm -hmm. sit there and chew and chew and chew endlessly to break it up enough so that their stomachs can digest it and their um, small intestine. Well, by the time you get to erectus, there's no sign of that huge gut because the ribs are flatter, suggesting that there wasn't a big stomach sticking out underneath, and their brains are a lot larger. And Mm -hmm. what Rangam argued is, therefore, they must have learned the control of fire in order to have that big shift in their bodies. Right. We don't know that yet. The oldest evidence for the oldest decent evidence for control of fire is about a million years old. But mm-hmm. these things are very, very hard to find. Now we—it's it, very possible that Homo erectus were um, weren't able to control fire, but were able to take advantage of it when they found it. And so maybe they could keep uh-huh. it burning for a while. And so maybe they were sort of um, random is not quite the right word, but they were opportunistic fire users. And it yeah. wasn't really until we get farther down the line that we get to actual clear evidence of constant control of fire. We just don't know yet, but um, certainly by several hundred thousand years ago, we now have good evidence of lots and lots of sites where people are controlling and repeatedly using fire. And
2: mm-hmm. that would
1: have, as you say, it, fire helps you break down foods. And so it makes them, the nutrition is much more available to you. You don't need a huge yeah. gut if you're eating a cooked steak, whereas you need a bigger gut if you're eating a raw steak.
2: Uh-huh.
0: And was our diet mostly raw meat after the hunting advances, but before
1: the using fire? Again, it's lots of people, there's there's lots of debate about this. My guess is that meat played a relatively large role. Once we moved from osteopithecines onward, I think Mm -hmm. meat played an increasingly important role because that's what would have supported that dramatic increase in brain size. Mm -hmm. In order to pay the rent on that big brain, you need to bring in lots of calories. And so once we started socially cooperating and our group started of emerging properties, well, we're going to hunt much more effectively. If I Uh can imagine tomorrow, I can say to you you and, and I can, Communicate to some degree. Remember, there's now pressure on us for the development of language because I'm trying to communicate about things that we don't see. Mm -hmm. And so, if I can find a way to communicate to you, maybe you go on this side of the valley, I'll go on this side, and we'll roll stones down on the Macedons who come through. Suddenly, you and I are eating like kings because Mm -hmm. there's an animal way bigger than the two of us that we have successfully killed, and now we can eat. And so, Mm -hmm. my guess is that meat would have played a, a very important role in that acceleration of our brain size.
0: Yeah. So thus far, we've been talking primarily about survival and increases in brain size or intelligence, like with, with hunting or uh, with avoiding danger or with uh, cooperating to get food. What about other forms of social intelligence? Like, um, are you familiar with Jeffrey Miller's mating mind hypothesis? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that, yeah, uh, go, ahead. go ahead. So that, that says that one of the reasons we might have become more intelligent is because we were selecting for it. Uh, sexually. So like you desire a more intelligent partner and that that might be a selective pressure.
1: Look, I am familiar with it. Um, Jeffrey Miller is a brilliant guy. I I disagree with him. And the main reason I disagree is that you still got to pay the rent. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, I might want a really intelligent partner because that's, it's fun. It's a sign of good genes. We've got more genetic expression in the brain than we have anywhere else. There's all Mm -hmm. sorts of reasons why I want that. But uh-huh. you have to have some way to be able to maintain that. And so I might also want that if I'm a zebra. But what good is it yeah. going to do for you <laughs> to be super duper smart if you're a zebra? you got no hands. You can't make tools. You eat grass for a living. And there's only so much grass a, an animal can eat at one time before its stomach's full. And now it has to digest. And so you've got no way to pay the rent on a big brain, whether I, as your partner, want it or not. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm sure Jeffrey's right that to some degree that played a role on the margins. But I don't think that's the primary drive.
0: Mm-hmm what about with handicap hypotheses like the peacock's tail, for example? Um, it wastes, well, maybe not waste, but it invests a ton of energy in this big, beautiful tail that's also basically a hindrance to its survival. And it, on one hand, it still has to pay the rent. So it's, it still has to justify this energy cost. But also it seems like over the course of evolutionary history, it's been justified because the like the sexier
1: peacocks are the ones that reproduce. Exactly. So here's a case where, remember, growing a tail isn't easy, mm-hmm. um, but, it's, but it, it takes a fair bit of energy to make that enormously long feather. But really, yeah. the cost of those feathers is not in the growing of them, but rather in the getting running away from tigers once you've got them. Uh-huh. And so if, I'm, if you and I are peacocks and you've got the proper four foot long tail and I've got a two inch tail, and a, and a tiger comes after us, you're gonna be slowly struggling to get away and I'm out of there. Mm-hmm. And so the big difference is not the energy cost in the production, but the fitness you'd have to demonstrate in order to survive with that enormous handicap, which is why, that, why it's given that name in the first place. Yeah. Um, you know, Zahavi was the one who argued <laughs> that this is attractive because it's an honest signal of quality. Mm-hmm. And so females are attracted to honest signals of quality. All sorts of animals have different honest signals. The peacock's tail is one of the most remarkable examples where it pays a huge price, but keep in mind that most males of most species never reproduce. And so this is a way for females to decide on those few males who are going to reproduce. Even in our human ancestry, we have far more mothers than we have fathers. And so many, many men, probably not most, but maybe as many as half were completely left out of the mating game. If that's the case, then, then anything that would cause half the men to be left out of the mating game is basically cost neutral because it was going to happen anyway. And this Uh is just now becomes the key signal that determines who gets in and who gets out.
0: Right. So most of the things we find attractive, like, like muscles and intelligence um, and and symmetry and things like that are signals of good fitness. Do we know of any Mm -hmm. handicaps for humans that, um, that we have been selected for?
1: Well, um, people argue that testosterone, which is a key hormone that makes men so muscular and big, um, mm-hmm. that, that testosterone has fitness costs because it seems to dampen some aspects of our immune system. Mm-hmm. If, that's, if that's really true, and I think the data are largely supportive of that hypothesis, but if that's really true, you could imagine that that's a handicap principle two. But what's interesting about that particular handicap is that although males are very reliably attracted to high estrogen female faces, which is the sort of rounder baby shaped face, Mm -hmm. females are not reliably attracted to high masculine faces and, you know, this chisel jaw and all that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Some women like that a lot. Some women aren't particularly interested in that. And there's lots of variability cross-culturally. So maybe there are times and places where women are very attracted to that And maybe there's times and places where, where they're not, and maybe under some circumstances, high testosterone does serve as a handicap and therefore isn't on a signal male quality. But I think the data, Mm -hmm. the the jury's out on that point.
0: Right. It also changes with women's ovulatory cycles, right? Like if, if they're ovulating, they're more attracted to like the rugged masculine look because it's good genes. But then uh, during the rest of the time, you're looking for like a more caring male that can support you and your, your offspring.
1: Yeah, the data is consistent with that. Now, the problem with most of the ovulatory data in the past is that it, it had women counting back in their cycle. And it, we now know that that's not a very good way to do it. It's not, mm-hmm. the, the, it's, it doesn't constrain enough, and there's differences between women. And so when they do this work properly, you have to test the hormones as you're doing it, which is very expensive. And so although it it the current data suggests exactly as you say, that really waits to be seen. If that effect proves to be robust and reliable, if I had to guess, Mm -hmm. I would say that it too might be sensitive to context. And so in Uh some environments, ovulating women might well be attracted to more masculine faces, but in other environments, they may not. Uh So on this
0: sex topic, we know that humans are moderately sexually dimorphic, less so than chimps. um, And that we're, we're pretty good pair bonders and mostly monogamous, but not completely. Was that something that we started off less monogamous, more like chimps? And then over time we became more pair bonding. And does that coincide sus- with any of the, the other things we've been talking about?
1: Yeah, I suspect so. I think that what happened there, with a lot of speculation, but, but what, what, I, what I think the data suggests is that as we moved away from chimps, chimps are already pretty brainy, but there are lots of brawn. That's Mm -hmm. how they live their life. As we move down the more brain, less brawn pathway, we become increasingly dependent as um, infants upon caregivers for an increasingly long period of time. And what you can see in any animal that's highly dependent on caregivers and difficult to feed is that you start to get pair bonding as a solution to somehow successfully bringing up the animal. Now, it's not always pair bonding. There's exceptions Mm -hmm. to that rule. There's other ways to do it as well. But we see that, for example, in most bird species, they live up in nests. They can't fly yet. And as a consequence, it takes two parents bringing them food in order for them to survive. And most birds pair bond. And they look a lot like us. They're not quite 100% sexually faithful, but they do form long-term social pair bonds, whereby they work together to raise their young. Human males don't put nearly as much effort into raising young as human females do, but we put way more effort into raising young than any of our other great apes. Mm-hmm. And so we've moved way down that, that, that um, path toward monogamy, and humans and hunter-gather humans, just like other humans, tend to be serially monogamous on average, where huh. we form long-term pair bonds, and then they often dissolve after a period of time, and then we reform them. Sometimes they last for a lifetime, and of course, there's exceptions where people are up to shenanigans. Sometimes they are allowed multiple partners at once, and sometimes they just do it secretly.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you think that has anything to do with the selection for better social cognition? Like whether it's evaluating your partner's needs or your child's needs, once men become more pair bonding and caring, there's sort of this increased need for, for social intelligence?
1: Well, I think it was the... the the social intelligence that started the, the social opportunities
2: mm-hmm.
1: that, that started with Australopithecines that drove that started making us get smarter, and then these processes very much self perpetuate. And so, okay. as you get smarter, new opportunities emerge, and as you get these new opportunities, there's new pressures on you to get smart. There's no question that forming long-term pair bonded relationships. That's very future oriented, at least the way humans do it. And so it doesn't have to be birds don't seem to be able to think about the future. And they make just the same pair bonds that we do. So you can get there via other mechanisms. But I think that we get there by and large via affection. But then that affection probably requires a lot of negotiation over time. And so it probably does dramatically enhance our social skills. But it would have been in this sort of self-perpetuating process. I don't see it as an independent driver.
0: Mm -hmm. So from Homo erectus nearly 2 million years ago to now, we have, we have these improvements in diet and maybe the ability to, to start using fire and cooking. We have sort of the snowball effect of social intelligence. Um, we have pair bonding and tool use. We have starting to plan and think for the future. Um, are there any other major things that we, that we might have missed on for how we, for what led from that to now in the last, in the last million years or so?
1: Yeah, so that big piece, that, that last piece, which we, you and I both hinted at and talked about briefly is our extraordinary communicative abilities. Mm-hmm. And so to be able to talk about things that, that aren't in the here and now, to be able to express any idea that comes into my head gives humans an enormous advantage that no other animal has. And that advantage is that every other animal, when, the, when an animal is born, it has to learn everything it needs to know in its lifetime. And uh-huh. there's no repository for that information. And so it watches its mother and it watches other members of its groups and it just learns by direct observation because they can't, no other animal can, to the best of our knowledge, can communicate anywhere near like we can, the consequence is they can't build up a repository of knowledge. They can't, their culture can't ratchet forward from one generation to the next. But ours does in an enormous way. Even before writing, there were oral story traditions in all human societies. And those oral story traditions told you how to live in the society where you were. They told you in the ecology in which you lived. They told you the things that you needed to do. And so humans just kept getting more and more effective simply mm-hmm. by virtue of the passage of time. Now with writing it, it dramatically expands that ability. And today mm-hmm. we know that you know, 10-year-old kids know what only the geniuses knew 500 years ago, that Copernicus discovering that the earth is not the center of the, of the galaxy of the, uh-huh. or even you know, the solar system, that um, Darwin discovering evolution. Every kid knows that now because what was only the purview of geniuses before, and in fact, what nobody knew at all, now becomes part of our common parlance. And it's our extraordinary communicative abilities that allow that.
0: Uh-huh. Right. So once language is full-fledged, in addition to the survival benefits that come from communication and cooperation, then cultural evolution starts to take off.
1: That's right. And so you've got, for example, the storytelling traditions that exist in every society. We all love to hear stories and we all love to tell them. And the reason we love that so much is because stories are the essence of what made us a success if you get attacked by a lion and you somehow survive it and you come back to the camp and tell us about it, I'm going to be fascinated because I'm going to Mm -hmm. be thinking, you know, even if I'm not aware of this, I'm thinking, Oh, if I can learn your lesson then I don't have to get all chewed up like Adam did. I can get, I can Uh know how to escape a lion without getting bit on. Mm -hmm. And so your expensive lesson becomes my free lesson and no other animal can learn in such an indirect way through the experiences of others.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Do you uh, believe that these that these stories are sort of passed down in an archetypal form, like there's there's sort of these constant patterns that exist throughout history and then we learn to pick up on those patterns?
1: I do think so. I think that it's a natural way for a story to be of use to others. And so what you've got is is a hero or, or some sort of character, maybe an anti-hero, and then you've got some kind of conflict or difficulty that the person experiences, and then you've got some kind of resolution. And stories, Mm -hmm. most stories follow that pattern, and stories that do follow that pattern have enormous potential for learning, because something went wrong in your life, and then you figured out how to solve it, and that could be super useful for me someday. I don't know. Maybe Mm -hmm. I'll never encounter that problem, but maybe I will. And if I could store that away. Now, if you have a story that doesn't follow that pattern, Uh, Here's this happy guy. He stays happy in the middle story. He's happy at the end. Nothing's ever happened. We don't Mm -hmm. find that story very interesting. That story's not told very much. Yeah. Uh There's not much to learn from that.
0: Uh huh. So that seems to relate to how our memory works because it's almost like you sort of ignore all the parts that stay constant and you focus on the the radical changes.
1: Yeah. The moving parts are much more interesting. Mm
0: -hmm. Wow. So, many steps and layers on that six million year journey. But I guess, as you said, six million
1: years on an evolutionary timescale is still a very quick leap. Yeah, the blink of an eye. And so it's, in my mind, it's, it's a fascinating story. There's all sorts of rough parts. Agriculture is another example. The invention of agriculture is what allows you and I to have this conversation, even though we're a great distance from one another, because it wasn't mm-hmm. until we started to gather in larger groups, we started to become specialists, we started to invent things. Hunter-gatherers invented a lot of very important things, but they didn't have the capacity or the number of humans necessary to do the massive kind of invention that's happened since then. But for early agriculturalists, it was a disaster. It introduced all sorts of new pandemics and diseases and things. It made the quality of their diet way worse. They got a lot shorter than their ancestors had been. It was only in the last generation Mm -hmm. or last two generations that we're as tall as hunter-gatherers used to be. So there's all these stories along the way or these events along the way, they were a momentary disaster mm-hmm. and then eventually led to really great outcomes. Now, if somebody said to you, look, I want you to do a, make a living a new way, you and the next 100 generations are gonna really suffer, but after that, it's gonna be great. You'd say, mm-hmm. no, thank you, right? <laughs> I'm not gonna go down the toilet for 100 generations in the hopes that then things will get better. But that's right. exactly what happened, not only when we left the trees and when we invented agriculture, et cetera. And it probably happened many times.
0: Right, so our future oriented thinking only seems to go so far.
1: Exactly, we're, we did not evolve to care about a hundred generations from now. We evolved to care about us today, tomorrow. Look, we're way better about caring about the future than chimpanzees are who can barely care about 20 or 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. But, but we, we discount the future heavily because in our ancestral past, who knows if we're even still going to be alive. Like uh-huh. I can worry about 10 years from now, but maybe I'll have been, I'll have died from parasites or maybe I'll have been eaten by a lion. I've really got to worry more about today.
0: Uh-huh. Wow. So I guess, I guess cultural evolution is what, um, what promotes those other types of thinking. Cause once you get philosophy, you get ideas like, you know, um, wisdom is planting a tree. Who's uh, whose fruits you'll never see or something like that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It takes, it, it, it takes a culture to want to do those things mm-hmm. and so the culture can can enable that by creating a government and then the government can hire me to go out and plant trees along the side of a road that I'll never benefit from but I'll get paid to plant those trees so I'll happily do mm-hmm. it and so these are great cultural evolution cultural innovations whereby humans come together and work in groups that are way larger than our ancestral groups ever were and way more specialized and making the world a much better place uh-huh. for everybody
0: yeah and i guess there's also a tie back into uh, natural selection as well, because it's like if these cultural strategies lead to basically more humans reproducing, then, um, then our, well, our genes get passed down as well.
1: That's right. And we end up with what we also call gene culture, co-evolution uh-huh. and fire is a good example. Once you invent that it can change the genetics of your body. So you're, you don't need big facial muscles anymore. You can spend more energy on brain rather than chewing, mm-hmm. um, uh, lactose intolerance. Once Somebody in our ancestral past not that long ago starts drinking the milk of their cattle and they happen to create the lactase enzyme into adulthood, which was a waste of energy and nobody bothered to do that before then, but whoever did that, it sweeps throughout the culture. Now that's an incomplete mm-hmm. sweep because it wasn't long enough ago, right. but if that had happened 20,000 years earlier, we would all be lactose tolerant because that's so valuable to be able to get that additional source of protein that it mm-hmm. served as a huge advantage. So again, culture gene coevolution.
0: Yeah. This has been a very illuminating conversation. Bill, thank you so much for your time.
1: Totally my pleasure, Adam. It was a lot of fun chatting with you.
0: You as well.